0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, good morning. Happy New Year. I hope you're doing well as we start this new year. If you're new with us or just visiting, I'm Pastor Tyler. I'm the associate pastor here and have been for the last 14 months, and I I am excited as we start this year for what God has in store for us at Journey Church this year. In part, that's because it's taken me about 14 months to find my footing here, uh, and I mean that both in terms of this church and Tucson, Arizona more broadly. Uh, I, I don't resolve to do this, but I do hope that this year you see a, uh, less of a puzzled expression on my face when you tell me things like, oh, school was canceled for a rodeo, and I just <laughs> stare at you. Like, you just said words, and I understand every single word in the sentence, but I don't know what they mean together. Well, I'm also excited, and I don't want to steal uh, any of Pastor Jim's thunder as he uh, will introduce more in the coming weeks about what we're doing this year. But I'm excited for our theme and our focus this year, which is on the mission, which Pastor Jim uh, drew out in his prayer moments ago. Uh, The mission, in particular, we'll be looking at the Great Commission, or what has been called the Great Commission by Christians for centuries. We get it from Matthew 28, 19 to 20. And when I was in seminary, I was taught by uh, Michael Wilkins, who was one of my professors. Or for those who had had his class, they just called him simply the Wilk. Uh, But Michael Wilkins is an expert on discipleship, and he said that it is the mission of the church, drawn from this text, uh, that I'll read in a second, that gives us the shape and structure and the drive and all the things necessary that we have inside of us to be the church and to move forward comes from Jesus giving us this mission. In, in, In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus says, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always.'" to the end of the age. With those words, Jesus sends his disciples out into the world, and with those words, the institution of the church is started. And from those words, we here at Journey Church derive our purpose for being. 52 weeks, or 52 Sundays out of the year, we gather here, as Ephesians 4.12 says, to be equipped to do the work of ministry. So you guys gather here, we all gather here together as members of this church in order to be built up, not so that it can stay in here, but then as we started the call to worship from God's word, we end the service with a good word, a benediction, Latin for good word, that sends us out to be not the church gathered anymore, but the church scattered and scattered providentially into different families, neighborhoods, uh, areas of town, jobs, classes, majors. Wherever it is that God has placed you, we scatter there to be on this mission, to be disciple makers wherever he has put us. And so this year we're going to spend a significant amount of our Sundays thinking about what it means to live in light of this mission. And in fact, this morning, we get to witness what is the result of people who live on mission. We're going to have two young men baptized later in our service today. And these uh, baptisms would not take place today if it wasn't for uh, fathers and mothers, if it wasn't for siblings, if it wasn't for friends and extended family, pastors, members of churches, and even guest speakers at camps, all living on mission. What we are about to see would not take place if it wasn't for that. And so we are going to look today at the text which has already been read for us in 2 Corinthians 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But since this isn't part of a series, it's sort of standalone, alone it might be helpful to get some context. So Paul is writing the letter to the Corinthians. And he has planted this church about seven years prior to penning the letter we're going to be looking at today. And after establishing church, he leaves them to continue doing his missions work. But the news he hears from them after some time is not good. There are issues arising in the church, and so he writes the first letter. What we have in our Bibles is First Corinthians. He writes that to address problems theological and disciplinary, so theological and we could say issues of life, ethics, or morality arising in the church. And biblical scholars believe that the church responded well to Paul's letter. They took it to heart, and they did what he asked them to do. And so Paul, encouraged by the response to his letter, planning another missionary venture, decides he's going to stop by the church at Corinth, and he writes them this letter to both answer further theological questions that they had and to prepare them for his coming. Among the issues that are raised is that Paul considers the nature of the atonement, what it means that Christ died for us, and how that affects how we live both in the church and amongst those in the world. And so we're going to pick up in this letter at that point looking at how do we do that, how do we live among those in the world. And I want to focus on, and these are not the only three points in this text, but I want to focus on three things. The motivations that Paul has for his mission work, the transformation that takes place in the heart in order to enable his mission work, and our role in the work of missions. So let's pray, and we'll jump in looking at those three points. Father in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done. We ask not only this in terms of expanding further in our own hearts, helping us to see where we need to grow, how we can increase in living in light of the reality that we are, as this text says, new creations. But we ask through the ministry of this church, by which I mean these people gathered here, that as Ephesians 4 says, that we be equipped to do the work of ministry, that we be equipped to make disciples from evangelism through spiritual growth And we ask that through us, you might bring more people to know you and to become new creations, to see their old self pass away and the new life begin in the kingdom of Christ. So, Father, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth this morning enlighten myself and my friends gathered here, that they be edifying to us, encouraging to us, and honoring in your sight. And in so doing, may this word glorify you. Amen. All right, the text has already been read, but if you have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians, you can follow along with me in chapter 5. And first thing we see as we look at chapter 5, verse 11 is that our text begins, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And I think this is so fascinating. It's one of the reasons why I picked this text to look at this morning, because it's, it's probably uncommon for many of us to think of the fear of the Lord as driving mission, the fear of the Lord as something that motivates us to go out to other people, uh, that, to motivate us to do evangelism. But here Paul says that if essentially if we don't understand the concept of the fear of the Lord— We lack a motivation for making disciples. As one commentator put it, describing the fear of the Lord, he said, To fear God is to express loyalty to him and faithfulness to his covenant. Those who fear God exhibit trust in him, obedience to his commands. According to the Old Testament, those who fear God obtain God's protection, wisdom, and blessing." You know, we can be uh, tempted at times when we're trying to make disciples, especially uh, when we're working with those younger in the faith than us, or when we're evangelizing to somebody who does not yet believe. We can be tempted to soften God's character. And to be sure, the phrase, the fear of the Lord, does not simply refer to uh, having a sense of terror or dread before God. In fact, for his, believer, for his followers, for believers, it, might, it means something quite different, yet, The fear of God is a response to God's holiness, which means for those who remain in sin and disobedience, terror is exactly what they should feel if they contemplate God. After all, Jesus' brother James writes in a letter sent to the churches in James chapter 2 verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. Demons feel terror at the thought of God because of who he is and their stance before him. And so we understand that we ought to, or those who, uh, those who are in disobedience, who are in disbelief, ought to also feel terror. The great Danish philosopher Soren philosopher Kierkegaard believed that many people actually do. They chalked it up to uh, angst, but they had a sense that when they looked at the world and they saw all the evidence of God's existence in the creation around them and in their own conscience, that they had a discomfort about thinking about those things. This is why Romans 1, when speaking of the fallen humanity and the evidence of God available to our senses as we experience the world, shares a remarkable insight. You see, Romans 1 isn't about unbelievers not being able to access knowledge of God through creation. Romans 1 actually tells us that what you can know about God in creation is plain to all people. But, when we are in disbelief and disobedience, we suppress that knowledge, and in so doing, our foolish hearts are darkened. In so doing, our thoughts become futile. In other words... Creation tells us about God's existence, and when we, when we disobey, when we disbelieve in God's existence, we have to suppress information, knowledge, which is available to us in creation, and in so doing, our thinking becomes flawed, and in so doing, we have no functional fear of God, because rejecting God justifies disbelief and leads to the hardening of hearts. So while the unbeliever should feel terror before God, he doesn't. For the Christian, though, for the believer, the fear of God as a response to his holy character is not terror, but rather the reverence a child has for his father. One theologian writing of the mind or the heart that is desirous of pleasing God says this, This mind restrains itself from sinning, not out of dread of punishment alone, but because it loves and reveres God as Father. It worships and adores him as Lord, even if there were no hell. It would shudder at offending him alone. Get that. For For the follower of God, if there were no punishment for disobedience, the follower of God would still shudder at the thought of breaking his law not because of some sort of uh, spanking that this child was going to get, but because of understanding who the father is, the father's great love and and amazing work. The thought of offending and violating that love and that work, that character, devastates the heart. The mind of this child, not because of his power, but because his love would be violated he continues here indeed is pure and real religion faith so joined with earnest fear of god that this fear also embraces willing reverence and carries such legitimate worship and by the way in this text it doesn't refer to worship as in the sunday gathering what we're doing here although that's that's not discounted rather what is in view in this text is romans 12:1 i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Paul doesn't want to let us get trapped in the concept that thinking about the fear of the Lord is something reserved for the high ivory tower of academia. Rather, he says that if we comprehend this, if we understand the fear of the Lord, we will be motivated outside of ourselves, outside of our study, outside of personal time with God, into the world to make disciples. Specifically, Paul says that the fear of the Lord, it compels him to persuade others. And to persuade them of what? to persuade them to become what he already is, which he says is fundamentally to be known by God. We thought about this a little bit a few weeks ago, but I understand that was last year, so we've got we've to refresh a little bit. Uh, it can be strange for us when we think so much about spiritual formation, we think about knowing God more. And yet the scriptures, it also highlights the concept of us being known by God where that comes from, and you can think about this if you're a parent or if you've ever witnessed or talked to a parent who has a young child. There's always a sense that the parent knows the child much more than the child knows them. And there's always a sense that who the child is, is drawn, the foundation from where their knowledge and their self comes from, is drawn from who their parent is. I mean, you can scroll through the contacts on your phone, and you can even look at how we're shaped by this. You know, the three most common places we get our last names? Where your family is from, Hearst, that is a wooded area next to a plain in England. Where do you think my people are from? A wooded area next to a plain in England, Hearst. Second one, Occupation. If I were to scroll through my contacts list in my phone, you would see carpenter, fisher, you would see occupations, people who were defined by what they did. But the third thing, and the most common thing, is actually this. Who's your dad? My wife's maiden name is Erickson, which, although her dad's not named Eric, that was her grandfather, son of Eric, Eric's son. You see, we derive and found who we are on the basis of our parents and being known by our parents. And in fact, if you, if you don't believe me, hang out in a supermarket and wait for a kid to get misplaced. And wait for that kid to go to be found by somebody in the store, and then they just look around and look for the recognition on the parent's face when they see their child who they, didn't, who they misplaced. They didn't know where he was. And then when they see the cashier or the clerk looking out and the recognition on the parent's face that is where the identity of the child comes from and that is what it means to be known by God not simply to know God so paul seeks to persuade others in order that they might experience the flourishing that he experiences he that he experiences as someone known by God but he tells us that there's a second motivation that he is compelled or controlled by the love of christ Now, this makes sense to us more so than the fear of the Lord, but that happens to be because we live in a sentimental culture. That's why Hallmark movies are always the same thing, is because Hallmark movies make money with the exact same structure because the exact same sentiment is drawn out in every single Hallmark movie. So if you've seen one Hallmark movie, you've seen them all. You want a fun magic trick with a kid who's never seen a Hallmark movie? Guess the entire plot in the opening scene. How did you know that? Because that is the exact same movie they make with different characters every single year. But when we think about the love of Christ here, we can't think in our general American sentimentalized frame. Notice in the text, by the way, that Paul does not derive this from some empty or fleeting emotion. It says that he has concluded something. What does that mean? It means that Paul has reflected on this, he has studied it, he has thought about it, he's investigated it, and at the end of all of that, he has derived an answer, and that answer directs him towards the love of God and compels him forward in mission. What is it that he has thought about? Verses 14 and 15. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. He died for all, and that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This isn't some deep new theological discovery that Paul has. This isn't some esoteric truth that you only encounter in the dustiest of theology books in the seminary library. This is the basic gospel. This is what Paul is saying, is that when you grasp even the basic premises of the gospel, that the love of God for us that it reveals compels us outward into mission into making disciples. And by the way, lest you think that be an easy thing, or lest you think that the love of Christ and what it compels us to do might encounter something out in the world that can overcome it. Look at 2 Corinthians 11 and see what Paul overcame in order to pursue this mission. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That normally killed somebody. You can read about it in the book of Acts. They think he's dead. They leave him on the outside of the city because they think he's dead. They walk back in. Paul gets up from the stoning and you want to know what he thinks? Those guys tried to kill me. They really need Jesus. And then he walks back into the same town and begins to preach the gospel again. He goes on, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. The love of Christ compels Paul far more than his sufferings deterred him. I think it's a good reflection question for us, and you can write it down if you would like, uh, a good to reflect on as we consider the mission of God this year what is it that we allow us to be deterred by? What do we encounter in the world that slows or stops us from making disciples? And how might we overcome that if we understood the compelling love of Christ for us? But in what we have, we have to recognize that we need, in order to do this, transformation. In order to be motivated in such a way, we need to first experience the love of God and the fear of the Lord in the way that Paul did. And how did he experience that? What transformation affected him and turned his heart from inward focus to missional focus, sending him out? Well, Paul hints at it here in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul once regarded Jesus, his followers, and others according to the flesh, and what that led to was was Paul's hatred of the church, hatred of Jesus, and his instrumentalization of everybody else, such that he used everybody in his life in order to advance his purposes alone. He used everybody such that they could be a means to his ends. He never viewed anybody as an end in themselves. But Paul puts that disposition behind him when he meets the risen Christ. On the road to Damascus, he ends up being blinded and walking a path which will lead to the conclusion that he drew in verse 14. He was so radically transformed that he can only speak of this in verse 17 in categorical terms. Therefore, if anyone, just Paul? No. Anyone. You? Anyone. Me? Anyone, if anyone, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul's missionary heart is a result of becoming a new creation. This is no minor change. This is a Copernican revolution of the heart. One commentator says this, astronomer, The astronomer Copernicus who was among the first to understand that the the planet Earth was not the center of the universe, has lent his name to what we call the Copernican Revolution as a description of any kind of radical rethinking. The Apostle Paul is no less famous for his Damascus Road experience, which changed the whole direction of his life. Even though an outwardly religious man, keep that in mind, So many of us, when we encounter the gospel, we encounter it already being people who are in the church, are in small groups, raised in Christian homes. But Paul was an outwardly religious man already, and yet the change in him is still deep and fundamental. Even though he was an outwardly religious man, everything had revolved around him. Formerly, he had lived an egocentric life as the center of his own universe. But now, according to verse 17 or 16, this is no longer. Verse 15 is true. He no longer lives to and for himself. He now lives to please the one who loved him, who died and was raised again for him. Christ Christ. Not Paul is the center of Paul's universe. Egocentricity, the I-centered life, has given away to Christocentricity. This is the sign of radical transformation. Verse 15, Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was died and raised. Self-denial, death to self, a life centered on Christ. The church has understood this for ages, but we easily slip into an individualistic and forgetful self-centered life. And so we must remind ourselves again and again that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. As such, my life is not my own to live. Later in this morning, two young friends of ours will be baptized today, and in doing so, they are saying in that act, and we are affirming in our observation that they have died to themselves, and they will now live haltingly, falteringly at first, but they will now live wholeheartedly, single-mindedly for Christ, because they are new creations. And after they have been submerged, symbolizing going into the grave with Jesus, and after they have come up out of the water, symbolizing their resurrection with him, we together as a congregation will sing these words My heart is drawn to self exalting. My heart is drawn to self exalting, but help me seek your kingdom first. As Jesus walked, so I shall walk, held by your same unchanging love. Be still my soul. Oh, lift your voice and pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. That is the song of a new creation. As new creations, we live on mission. But what does that mean? It's easy to say, it sounds catchy, sounds maybe fun or exciting, adventurous, but what does it mean to live on mission? What is our role in the mission of Christ in this world? Well, we see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Our role is a ministry of reconciliation, which requires spreading the, not a, the singular message of reconciliation. Which, for clarity's sake, Paul restates. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, Jesus, who knew no sin, who existed in eternity past as the second person of the Trinity, in perfect, harmonious, sinless relationship with God, came to earth, lived a sin-free life, though he was tempted in every way as we are, living sinlessly, he died as a sacrifice for us. He died, and in doing so, we, those sinners, might become children of God. We, those sinners, might be clothed in Christ's righteousness in a life existing from eternity of righteousness and obedience to God. In other words, we are clothed in his righteousness and we are given the work of being an ambassador. And Paul says that when we seek to persuade That it is God making his appeal to others through us. That it is not our words that matter. For being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, God through us speaks, making his appeal to those who are still lost to be reconciled. To know God, to be known by God, and to find peace and harmony. And so we appeal, we persuade, we carry a message, we represent Christ. And Paul says, we remove all obstacles. In chapter 6, verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand, for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet we are true. We are treated unknown, yet we are known, as dying, but behold, we live, as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, but always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet we possess everything. All of that is only true in Christ Jesus. And so we are ambassadors right where he has placed us, wherever that may be for you. And I understand and I want to acknowledge the struggle because I have sat in chairs like these ones and heard messages that I should evangelize more, that I should be more involved in other people's lives, that I should lead a small group, make disciples. I have heard that message. And I, and maybe you were experiencing this, have felt discouraged by it. Paul recognizes this. He says that some received the grace of God in vain. He's not talking about there the salvific grace which we have been singing about and which we will celebrate in baptism. He's saying that some people have received God's grace, yet that grace has not compelled them into mission. And so there's a sense of vanity about a Christian like that. A Christian who is not participating in the mission of God. I think in order to overcome discouragement with the mission, we must first recognize and be honest about our fatigue with it. A couple of theologians reflecting on this recently wrote, but here is a great admission that many of us need to make. When it comes to the Great Commissions, our hearts really aren't in it. Something far deeper than more mere practical or operational limitations. That's, that's, it's not... We need more tools, we need more uh, time, we need to organize our schedule better. All of those are practical, operational limitations. He says it's something more than that, that is causing our mission fatigue. What ails us goes right to the core of our relationship with God. So here's a second reflection question for you. What does it say about our relationship with God if we neglect his mission? If we aren't compelled by the love of Christ, and if our disciple-making efforts, or lack thereof, reveal no fear of the Lord. I'm going to leave that there because I think only you and the Lord know what to do with that question. But here's the encouragement. So often we get wrapped up in things and we get worried about things and sometimes we don't evangelize because we are worried about how others will view us. Here's what Paul says in a section I just skipped over in 2 Corinthians 6-2, quoting Isaiah. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And then Paul, writing his own commentary on that, says, Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Friends, I do not know what will face you, what will face me, as in this year we act as Christ's ambassadors. But what I know is this, that today is the day of salvation. That the baptisms we will witness are a testimony to that. That the Spirit longs to regenerate hearts and that the, tec- the scriptures say that God desires all to know him in Christ Jesus. Today is the day of salvation and we are seeing increasing openness in places where in previous generation it was unexpected and thought impossible. We are seeing increasing openness on college campuses in major metropolitan cities. All around the world in places that are closed off to Christianity, to missionaries, and to the scriptures. And it's all happening because simple ambassadors for Jesus Christ carry a message of reconciliation wherever he places them. The big news stories of this time of year when you hit Christmas and in between Easter are always about how the church is losing people, but demographically, that's just not true. The data doesn't bear it out. Evangelical Christianity is growing in small and subtle ways that are often missed by sociologists and statisticians. And by God's grace, there is more harvest left to be done. But... How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent, as is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We need no fear of man Because the very feet of those who carry the message of reconciliation to the world are beautiful. That was written and said in a day before closed-toed shoes, by the way, with dusty streets and wild animals. But because of the message on their lips and the joy of Christ in their hearts as they are compelled by his love and the fear of the Lord, those feet are still beautiful. Let me ask you one more question. Will we, because it's not just dependent on one of us, this burden does not rest on the shoulders of one individual in here, but will we as a church hear and heed the call to be sent into the world on mission when we go through the days wherever God has placed us? Friends, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you from the very beginning have been a missionary God. That you have sent your Son to seek and save the lost. And as we sang earlier, each one of us in here bears a remarkable similarity of testimony in this aspect. We all, like sheep, had gone astray. We each wandered from your way, Lord. And yet, the good shepherd Jesus Christ sought us each. And he did not seek us in his own flesh and blood, but by sending ambassadors and emissaries of his kingdom, bearing the message of reconciliation. May we be a people that goes forth from here, carrying that same message wherever you have providentially placed us. And so we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.